Welcome, and thank you for listening today. This Caregiver Life podcast focuses on caregivers from all walks of life. Throughout the episode, we will hear from caregivers on the front line, those who do the day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour caregiving. We will also hear from care recipients, professionals in the field of caregiving, and other various topics of interest to those living this caregiver life. Today's episode of This Caregiver Life is brought to you by TBI Warrior Foundation, a nonprofit organization with a mission to improve the quality of life for veterans, civilians, and children living with brain injury, as well as their caregivers, through community integration, education, and advancement programs. March is National Brain Injury Awareness Month. Every year, two and a half million people in the United States sustain traumatic brain injuries. TBI Warrior Foundation is grateful for this opportunity to bring you education from experts in the field of TBI, as well as inspirational stories and helpful life strategies from TBI caregivers themselves. TBI Warrior Foundation, paving the path to success and independence. Learn more at www.tbiwarriorfoundation.org. Okay, so welcome Jen, Jen Ransel. Jen is our guest today. And if you could give us a little bit of a a background on yourself, that would be great. Sure. Um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in Pennsylvania. And I teach undergrad and graduate school in human development and family science and marriage and family therapy. I've been married almost 25 years. Uh, We have four adult children, some in college, some moved away. and um, my interests are in helping families and couples in particular um, in the areas of intimacy. I work a lot with veterans because my private practice office is close to Fort Indian Town Gap and I see a lot of veterans families and I work some with um, wounded warrior veterans and their families um, through Johnny and Friends. Okay, great, um, thank you. So what drew you into becoming a marriage and family counselor? Well, um, the easy answer is it's part personality and part interest. Um, I've always been a person who um, cultivated friendships where there was a lot of disclosure and I was sort of everybody's uh, confidant in high school and then in certainly in college, I was a resident assistant and then um, just knew that that was sort of my pull. Um, Marriage and family therapy was sort of the umbrella organization that I went under because I wanted to work specifically in private practice and I wanted to work from a systemic lens, looking at the whole family, not just individuals, um, individual clients, but looking at um, all the relationships and the, the patterns of relating and dynamics in a relationship rather than um, an interpsychic perspective or a psychology perspective. So kind of landed there and have been there ever since. And you have a particular, um, your practice is particularly focused on sex therapy? It is, uh, which sounds a lot more scandalous than it really is. Um, I, I see couples and uh, individual clients specifically in the areas of sexuality, but that, um, 
is sort of broken into um, thirds. I see a third of couples who are working through um, sexual dysfunction. I see another third of couples working through infidelity and sex addiction. And then my last third of clients is working through trauma and abuse. So um, when we think sex therapy, we typically think of um, helping couples have better sex. And that is a part of what I do, but that's actually a small part of what I do. More often I'm I lost you there for a second. Okay, I think I'm back. Okay, good. Well, as I always say when we do our podcast, <laughs> we're not perfect with technology. <laughs> um, sure. So I just we just lost. I just lost you there for a second. Um, so well, I was thinking about um, when I asked you to come on as a guest um, that we would take a little bit deeper dive on this caregiver life. Uh, by having professionals come on and, and speak to the issues of intimacy um, first as an issue, because I, I think as a caregiver, we often feel like we lose that first, is that feelings of intimacy. It's difficult to draw the line between being a caregiver and a spouse. And that and it doesn't have to necessarily be a spouse. Um, it could be, you know, significant other, whatever your really adult relationship is with, with, um, the person that you're caring for, not your child or your mother or your father. We're specifically speaking right. about couples. Um, and so sometimes I hear caregivers say that they find it really difficult to jump over from being a caregiver to, to being an intimate partner, to having sex again with um, their spouse or significant other. So what, what are some of the, the things that you can speak to about that to help them mm -hmm recreate a framework for themselves? So it's really normal to see um, caregivers move away from what we would traditionally think of as romantic or spousal relationships when they become primary caregivers for uh, injured or disabled or ill um, client, uh, spouses or partners. Um, that's, that's pretty normal because the amount of work that it takes to provide sustained living changes how you think about your relationship. Um, it's easy when you are in a, um, a relationship where that injury or that illness is not present to think about all the things you did as a couple that built intimacy and romance and excitement and um, you probably spent time going out and doing things and now the doing things takes effort and time and more planning and more um, usually uh, more equipment or more um, bags or things. There's a lot more planning that goes involved and so it becomes much more difficult to do the things that you used to do. And in relationships, when we're building intimacy and we're building relationship early on in the relationship, we establish patterns of relating to one another that carry us into our adult relationships, into the more mature relationships. For example, um, there's a rhythm to how young couples behave with one another. Um, just think about your um, 
experiences either in junior high or early high school, how young couples couple off is very, um, very specific ways. They make a lot of eye contact. They share a lot. They talk constantly. Often there's a lot of non-genital, non-sexual touch. They're sort of like little um, primates picking things out of each other's hair and touching each other's shoulders and backs. And all of that's releasing oxytocin. And that oxytocin release um, fuels this bond that happens. And when we're in relationships where we're primary caregivers, we're not doing many of those behaviors at all. So oxytocin levels drop down, particularly if we're not having sex and, and more specifically not having orgasms. And the level of oxytocin drops off and that gets perceived on some unconscious levels as we're no longer in love. Now, interestingly, we can help couples regain that, but we have to go back to those early patterned behaviors to elicit more oxytocin, more um, connection and bonding, and then those feelings can kick back in. But oftentimes it's because we've stopped. And this is not just true for caregivers. Lots of older couples who've been married 20, 30 years experience a drop off in the excitement. And that really is because they've stopped holding hands, they've stopped giving back rubs, they stopped kissing, um, all of those behaviors that release oxytocin that make us feel close and bonded. So how do they begin to get that back for themselves? Sure. Well, and, and some of this will be very specific then to the individual situation, because if we're um, talking about a physical disability where maybe mobility um, is an issue, they may not be able to hold hands. They may not be able to exchange back rubs or touch. So the creativity would have to kick in to what is, what is our potential here? What are we able to do? Um, the other um, potential issue that um, can, can come up for couples is the cognitive piece where um, if there's brain injury or limitations with um, cognition, that can also fuel a sense of, um, we're not connecting with talking, we're not able to be creative. Um, there may be a lot of limitations there, but for couples who have the ability to be more mobile and also have you know, the ability to think about what they're doing, I would say start with um, a lot of cuddling behaviors. So what we typically see in, um, in young couples, sitting together on the couch, um, laying close together um, in bed, um, increasing the amount of skin-to-skin -skin contact. We know that that works in terms of bonding with infants, and the same mechanism of um, bonding happens skin-to-skin -skin in adult relationships too. So increasing the amount of non-genital touch helps create a sense of bond. Um, and couples can do that on a number of levels. They can be very intentional about that. Um, they can create rituals and routines that are part of the day-to-day -day life that will sustain the, the amount of intimacy that they're experiencing. So for example, um, and our, our listeners know this about me that my husband um, has ALS. Right. And he needs help with activities of daily living. And uh, showers can be fun. Mm -hmm. 
Sure. If your mindset is there, your shower could be fun and interesting and a lot of touching can go on there. Sure. Um, and, and that would be a really um, nice way to incorporate it on a daily basis if that's a possibility with, you know, balance and things like that. Um, for some caregivers, that might be more of a challenge because they're worried about safety and falling um, concerns. But yeah, for couples that um, that are wanting to increase the amount of time that they spend in touch, that would be a great opportunity. But it also could be a great opportunity in terms of um, creating more times that they're being prompted to be intimate. So we often think about sexual intimacy as being a spontaneous eruption of mutual interest and excitement. And if you've been married long enough, you know that that's really not what happens most of the time. Most of the time we make intentional choices about sex and then allow those feelings to build naturally. Um, so we have to work a little bit harder maybe in expanding what's normal in terms of a sexual relationship too. Um, so creating uh, ritual and traditions and um, rhythms around bathing would be a good opportunity because that's happening frequently to say these are opportunities in which we connect physically. It may or may not lead to sex, but it's a time that we're together physically. Um, think about like um, the last 15 minutes before you fall asleep could be rituals around touch. It doesn't have to lead to sex, but it could every, if it's intentional, it's every night for 15 or 20 minutes, we're talking, we're laying face to face and we're touching um, to whatever ability we can. That's going to bump up in, in pretty spectacular ways, really, the amount of oxytocin that you're experiencing. And my guess is that that will, that will also lead to more sexual encounters. So, so I feel like what I hear you saying, especially when I think about these very difficult uh, physical limitations that mm -hmm. uh, people have and that we then are caregiving for, is changing our, as a caregiver, changing our mindsets. Sure. And, and not only changing our mindsets around the spontaneousness and romance around sex, but also how very susceptible we are in terms of our own mental state to change our mood, sexual or otherwise, just by being intentional about it. Um, we often talk about um, female sexual desire being sort of something that needs to be primed rather than um, something that happens spontaneously. And um, there's some interesting science that talks about female desire does not really operate on a spontaneous loop like male sexual desire does because we don't have surges in testosterone the way men do. Um, and most of our uh, caregivers are probably, um, are, are probably operating under a similar sort of, I don't have that surge of interest. But if we turn our minds to it and attend to it, we tend to be able to prompt a, a response. Um, I use an example with my students where I have them uh, close their eyes and think, did they spontaneously want lemons or lemonade first thing in the morning? 
And then I talk about lemons and I describe the lemons and we, you know, I ask them to imagine the smell and the taste and things like that. And then ask them if they're salivating at the end of that experiment. And what it demonstrates is they had no spontaneous interest in lemons when I started talking. And after five minutes are, are physically responding simply by thinking about it. And sexual desire works the same way. When we attend to sexual desire, it kicks in. Um, when we're not thinking about sex, it sits somewhere outside of our, our peripheral consciousness. Um, so we can, we can sort of intend to shift our attention. Um, and that typically helps with feelings of sexuality and arousal, but it also helps with um, sort of priming that pump of feeling more connected and sexual as well. Oh, I love that. That's so much great information to think about. And I, and I don't know that we transition to thinking like that very quickly. I think um, it depends on mm -hmm. how you've come to this space as being a caregiver. Sometimes you're dealing with um, this traumatic diagnosis or this traumatic injury, and it takes a while to get there, but eventually it becomes part of your life because you are a couple and you're, you're a couple mm -hmm. you've had sex before, you had a sex life, you have a history of sexual experience with each other. And then how do we change that to kind of reclaim some of that as a couple? Mm -hmm. Because it's usually so dramatic, whatever it is that you're going through, that to lose that right. as well seems, I don't know, just sort of like a boatload more grief. And I think there's even grief going into it, knowing that you have to change how it was for you. Because as the caregiver, if you're typically the female caregiver, and not necessarily a female caregiver, but it's you're typically the caregivers are females, that we do not initi initi initiate sex in our relationships. Maybe we did, right. but maybe we didn't. And now that's a change, a shift for us, mm -hmm. how we're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. In, in relationship dynamics, that is a loss that we don't often identify. Those changing roles in um, how we related as Oh my gosh, I lost you again. Uh, reciprocal kinds of relationships and so um, that makes a big difference in then what we're waiting for or what we're primed to interpret as a sexual behavior. So that's going to make a, a big difference as we start to think about how are we changing um, our perception of what happens sexually um, to become um, sort of a functional couple in our sex life, things are going to have to change. Um, and, and I think it's normal to sort of have that come later on after the diagnosis or after the illness or the event, because we, we tend to have to handle all the survival pieces first, all the, um, the intervention pieces first. And then as we move up sort of, um, into more relational needs, those, those pieces become aware. So we're not even you know, really thinking about it when our spouse is in the hospital or our partner just got a diagnosis. That's the last thing we're thinking about. Um, but three months, six months into that, the need is gonna start um, coming to the surface. 
Yeah, that's that's great information right there. And is it it's important for our caregivers to know that kind of be patient with themselves, um, mm -hmm. with their grief and um, and then finding new pathways for themselves. And it, you had mentioned to me um, the three T's, which I I thought we could kind of wrap up. You know, the last few minutes sure. of our interview with the time, talk, and touch, and we can leave that as something for our caregivers to think about. Right. Um, so this is not my inf um, exclusive information. This is well-known um, sort of uh, relationship intervention to say that when we increase the amounts of time, talking, and touch that we're doing in a relationship, that tends to make the relationship more vibrant, feel stronger and more connected, and also give a sense of well-being to our own uh, security in the relationship. So if we're thinking back to our seventh and eighth grade example of um, young people in love, you think about how much time they spend together. In fact, you can't really separate them. Um, you have to work hard to get them to stop talking on the phone or texting all the time or um, you know, wanting to be together as much as possible. And I think as relationships grow and they're longer term, you lose that sense of, I just want to be with my partner all the time. So we can, we can create atmospheres in which that time is happening. And sometimes couples need a little bit of help in doing so. And I always suggest pick a new hobby, um, learn something new together. That can be a way to spend time together. Um, I'm not Although I, I do enjoy a serial, um, you know, kind of binging on Netflix kind of um, at activity with my spouse um, to relax, that doesn't always build relationship, but learning something new could. So maybe listening to a book on tape where every day we listen to one chapter and then we have something to talk about. And it would it it could be something that we mutually have an interest in, but it also could be we take turns. You pick a book one month, I'll pick a book the next month. Listening to a podcast if a book seems too academic. Um, doing something that stimulates some sort of new information coming into the marital system or the relationship system gives you something new to talk about. And sometimes that can be a spark of interest. Um, if mobility is not an issue, going places, doing things, taking up a new hobby, um, these would all be ways that you could um, engage with one another in something that's meaningful, but also have something to talk about that's new. We know that couples who are together for a very long time run out of their stories and creating new stories by having these new things to talk about sometimes helps jumpstart that a little bit. Um, and then the touch, we've talked a little bit about, but building up that non-sexual touch that leads towards sexual intimacy is going to be really important. Um, couples often um, tell me that it feels a little um, scary to open up dialogue when there's a lot of stuff that maybe they haven't been spending a lot of time talking about that's building up over a time or, or a long period of time. Um, and so something I do with my clients is ask them uh, before they talk about something serious or difficult to talk about three things that are going well. 
So that can be a pattern of talking um, where when we sit down to talk, we're going to say two things or three things that are going well, that we're proud of, that we're grateful for, you know, a positive, and then maybe one thing that I would like to change or I'd like to talk about or I'm concerned about, um, not in the blaming way, but sometimes that pattern of communication where we have to think of three things before we complain about something keeps the conversation more tolerable than here's my list of things that I don't like and I'm not happy about and you did wrong and I'm frustrated about, you know, but really thinking about what are the things that I can do that are positive first. And then if I have something to share that's um, more of a concern or more negative, I'll, I'll share that after I've said things that I'm happy about. Um, that can be a, a good pattern behavior. I don't know, I use it with my kids too, you know, say something pleasant before you say something negative, you know, that's a good, a good way to sort of think about um, talking as well. That's a great idea. I, cause I think sometimes when we, um, we say, oh, can we have a talk? It feels so threatening. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, you sort of get that pit of your stomach, um, you know, clenched up about, oh dear, here it comes. Yeah. Instead yeah. of saying, no, talking's good. Yeah. Just finding some of, you know, just, you know, if you're dealing with something so overwhelming, you know, as the caregiver and the care recipient, but just finding like regular, just regular things like, I really like that iced tea today. I mean, whatever it is that you could find that's positive to start out with, I think is such a great idea. That's such a good tip. Well, I think we'll wrap it up today um, with this, because this is such a good note. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your ideas. And I think our listeners, I got a lot out of it. I hope our listeners do too. I think they will. I'm glad. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today on this Caregiver Life podcast, Jen Ransell. We appreciate your wisdom. We appreciate the time that you've given us today. This is such an important and sensitive topic for so many of us. Um, even if we are dealing with disabilities in our lives, intimacy can be a challenge for us to talk about. But when you add on disabilities, it can be that much more of a challenge for us. And I've really appreciated the insights that you've given us. I know that for Tom and I, uh, many times in our life we've struggled with how to have that intimacy that we had always enjoyed before he became disabled. And I, I can see that we've done some things right and I can see how we can do some things better. I love the time, talk, and touch, the three T's that you shared with us. And that's it for us today on this Caregiver Life, Life podcast. If you want to send us a message, please send it to us at thiscaregiverlife at gmail.com on Facebook at This Caregiver Life. You can also find us on Twitter, which has a shortened, this care, it's a This Caregiver on Twitter, and This Caregiver Life on Instagram. We appreciate all of our listeners and all of our guests that have come on here. Until the next time. Mm -hmm.